Hi there. Welcome along to the Current State of Music podcast. I am your host, Chris Cracknell. I am a mix engineer and audio engineer out of my own studio, Goldtone in Hove. And I also DJ under the name of Six Foot Stereo on a station here in Brighton called One BTN. And I also sometimes remix and produce under the name Hollows. So that's like my kind of clarification of who I am. And why am I doing this podcast? Well, this podcast, it's already in a season two. This is the first episode of season two. And I just thought I'd take a moment just to explain why I'm putting these interviews together. Basically, a couple of years ago, I found myself at a bit of a turning point in my life. Although I'd been working in audio, kind of in the background, I had a very much a steady day job being a financial director of a company. And that all kind of sort of fell apart and came to an end. And I found myself either thinking about having to get another job, which I didn't particularly like. I didn't like the career I had and I didn't really look forward to more years of doing the same sort of thing. Or I would take my audio skills that I've been learning over the years and my DJing and my interviewing people and the studio that I'd built and open that up and forge a new career path. But the one question I sort of had in my mind was, is there a music industry and what is the state of it? Is it a career that I can get into or are kind of those days gone? Am I already, have I already missed the boat? So whilst thinking that, I thought, well, maybe if I start talking to people about it, people in the industry and artists and associated people, record labels, engineers, whoever really, whoever's got a, a bit of time in the industry and hopefully a view on where it's at maybe if i speak to them and find out about their journeys then maybe i can find some similarities and then hopefully through that i can kind of gauge if there's going to be a place in it for me and hopefully for you if you feel also inspired to kind of get into this industry and to forge a career for yourself then hopefully you can find some comparisons too and realize that the people that I'm talking to aren't superhuman they're not in any way different from you and me they all suffer the same things like imposter syndrome and not being welcome in the club and all those things that everybody else suffers from or well, these people suffer from that too but they've just managed to kind of work their way through it and get to where they are now and they all occupy different areas of the music industry and it's an absolutely fascinating subject talking to all these people about it so hopefully there'll be something in this that you can kind of take away from it and that will inspire you to start your own journey, whether it's in audio or music or whatever, just something that will show you that people achieve things by 
doing things and meeting people and all those sort of ideas that when you're on your own you often forget and you just get crippled by fear so not only will we find out what the current state of music is according to all these different people hopefully you'll be inspired by their journeys too so this time for episode one season two we kick off dmc champion vinyl collector a man with the keys to john peel's vault this is an hour with dj mr thing so cool mr thing hello please introduce yourself what do you do your name and what do you do uh my name is dj mr thing i am a dj former dmc champion uh and i occasionally very occasionally produce records as well yeah and i work for bbe nice so let's to stick with the format of the podcast let's go back to your earliest memories of music yeah what's your earliest sort of eureka moment uh i i was into when i was when i was really young i was into quite bad pop music but i hated 80s pop music that i heard on the radio i wasn't into it at all uh but i was into i mean the first stuff i was buying was not probably considered not that cool now it was stuff like adam and the ants and howard jones and things like that and, but then when uh, kind of around the same time as i was hearing that kind of stuff i was getting a lot of guys at school were trading the street sounds tapes this is probably okay. most probably most people's into to hip-hop yeah was um was those compilated the street sounds electro comps so i was here you know i was hearing those and i was i was kind of i'd heard things things on the radio and stuff but hadn't heard anything that had really really grabbed me grabbed me like that but uh when i had sucker mcs run dmc right it was like this is this is what i'm into yeah this is what i really like and it's been and i've been you know kind of solid with that from before so did you have like a, was there a sort of crew at school that kind of led you into that or how did you find those those things not really just just friends of mine my i mean um my my mum is really into motown Right, and and she's like a huge Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye fan, so and George Benson things like that. So we we grew, I grew up listening to that in the car all the time. My dad's massively into Pink Floyd, uh, but he wasn't allowed to play it in the car. <laughs> he was only allowed to play that when he was on his own in the car or in the house. But um, you know, my mum kind of always always had the had the Motown and whatnot on in the car. So and in the house too. So I grew I grew up with a lot of that music, but when I was at school, it just kind of it just kind of filtered down to me really that you know people swapping tapes and playing stuff at lunch break and things like that. Yeah. Uh, and and also I was lucky that my older cousin Ian he had a job at that point, whereas I did not. I was on paper round money <laughs> at that point. So uh, he was he would meet his my my uncle would meet up with my dad every friday and every friday i would get another album to tape from my older cousin right so he would lend me like mantronics yeah 
LL Cool J, things like that. And that, all of that stuff also filtered down to me, stuff that I probably wouldn't have heard yeah, yeah, yeah. initially. Yeah. So once I kind of got into that and I started learning about about records and things, I was really kind of up and running with it. You know, he would always lend me stuff. I would then go out and find it yeah. with my with my paper around money. So yeah, and and also weirdly, the guy who ran the news agents that I did my paper around from was a former DJ. Right. And he let me when he was selling off his records. He let me go through it, and wow. I didn't know what I was looking at. I probably left, my goodness, so much stuff. But this was maybe 86, yeah. when I was 14. Yeah. So I didn't know, I, I knew the barest minimum of stuff, you know, and even though I had uncles and things who had a lot of records, and two, two of my uncles in particular have really big record collections. Right. Um, and they would lend me, you know, they would lend me records. And when I babysat for my cousins, I would go through their records. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just always looking. I was looking to, you know, anything that looked interesting in my uncle's records, I would go through. So like I found I found a few breaks quite early on just from babysitting for my cousins. So I found one record, what was it? Family of Man, which is like Herbie Mann's spin-off group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With Steve Gadd and everybody in it. Uh, all of the things like that I found. My uncle was also big. He's my dad's brother. He's into, big into Pink Floyd, Jimi Hendrix, things like that as well. He's really into kind of quite off the wall music. Yeah. It's quite funny because he comes to me now and he's like, "What have you got for me?" Yeah, oh, it's quite nice. Yeah, it's quite. So, nice. did you have? Was there any kind of musicality at school? Like, did you sort of drift towards any like musical instruments or musical theory or anything like that? No, I really didn't do very we, we we had music class at school and I really didn't do very well at it. Yeah. It was I wanted they had drum machines right um there for us to, you know, mess around with and keyboards. Uh I remember they had like a SH101 Roland and things like that there. Um and my friend my friend uh who eventually taught me how to mix and stuff, he he could play piano and he was showing me how to use these things because he was really into it because his older brother was already a DJ yeah. and he had about an 808 and things like that yeah. back then which was just mind blowing yeah, yeah, yeah. so um, you know we would quite often you know, we would sometimes go and see his, his big brother and just be like wow just seeing all this stuff that he had you know so yeah. um, it was really really interesting but I, honestly I didn't I didn't try and play I couldn't I just wanted to make beats yeah. rather than play instruments I think and I was pretty, pretty good at, pretty good at that with a drum machine, secret, you know, step writing and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I never had a drum machine in my own until much, much later on, because yeah. the, the um, yeah, and I never learned to read music or anything like that. I was just yeah. more interested in what I could get out of records. Yeah. So when did that? So when did that sort of come into the thing? When did you get like a set of turntables, or how? Is that how you started putting? Sort of mixing, or did you go sort of like you know I've got a cassette, whatever you've got, like a cassette recorder and yeah bits and pieces, and you just making it work, or did you have a set of turntables out from the off? I've never, I never had turntables from the off. No, uh, I probably to start with, I had a stack, you know, stack stereo system, stereo system, anything, any kind, anything that I could play records on, I I would I would get, yeah. um, but you know, <clears throat> we was. 
wrecking people's hi-fi setups, like jamming matches into the into the phono auxiliary switch to make it like a makeshift transformer yeah. button. <laughs> and and making our own slip mats as well out of bits of bits of paper and putting them underneath bits of t-shirt and yeah. stuff like that. Not, yeah. None of it worked. You know, got, I've got absolutely wrecked records to, 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 to tell the stories at home. <laughs> but, um, you know, I've got a lot of that stuff. Uh, and that was that was what I learned. And then, then my friend got a set of belt drive realistics. Yeah. And my other friend who lived around the corner from me, he got a set as well around the same time. They even got the same mixer. I don't know how right. they did it. They both had, it was like they both, they both went to Tandy within a month of each other and bought the same Memorex belt drive turntables and the realistic four channel with the with the with the Roker crossfader. Yeah. My old my, my other friend figured out how to take the ball bearing out. Right. So that the fader didn't click in the middle. Yeah, yeah. So it would just go across and then he was, you know, kind of, you know, loosened it up and stuff like that. But he he really actually taught me how to mix first, like how yeah. to count it in bars and stuff. I had no idea. Yeah. I knew how to put things together. I knew where they should fit, but I didn't understand about the timing and things like that. Yeah. Where it needed to be rather than just anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah he, sh he showed me about that, that kind of thing. So. so then how did it progress from there? Like when did you, you know, when did you get a set of turntables? When, when did that start happening? Where you kind of sort of start excelling from your peers? Um, I don't know. When did I get it? I got I got my decks in maybe eighty eight eighty nine when I was at school. I would I switched jobs from the paper round to working at the supermarket, uh, pushing trolleys around, working in the car park. Yeah. Like they wouldn't let me on the shop floor, so I was basically working in the car park. That was all they would let me do. So I was doing that. You were that guy. Being, I was being that guy. So um, that's what I did. I basically a guy at school had got some, had, had got bought some, and grew out of it. Just got bored of it because he couldn't do it right away. Yeah. He was. He very kindly. Um, <clears throat> let me buy them but pay them monthly so every right. month wow. when I, every month when I got paid from my job at the supermarket I would give it I would go around and see him and give him some more money wow so yeah that was my that was my first that was buying my first set of decks but I had no mixer right. so I was borrowing mixer from my friends I would go to my friends down the road he was literally at walking distance 10 minute walk from my house yeah so I would walk down there Borrowed a mixer for a week, bring it back. Then I would maybe there was actually a DJ hire shop locally as well, and I would sometimes borrow them, hire them from there for a couple of weeks, yeah. so that I could put ideas together because I I was starting to amass records by this point. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, I was uh, yeah, that you know that's kind of where it where it came from, and then I just stuck at it. I just really really stuck at it. Was it a case of, you know, like you were squirreled away doing it and sort of perfecting the art or were you playing out or like were you doing any parties and stuff like that? I wasn't wasn't playing out at all. Um, I didn't my first gig was in maybe nineteen ninety. Eighty nine end of nineteen eighty nine, beginning of ninety. Right. And that was in a town hall which is now Marks and Spencer's. 
So you weren't motivated by the kind of being a DJ? Were you more motivated by the ideas and what you could do with it? Would yeah. you say that that's... I would defi definitely say that, yeah. I was, I was more interested in being creative with it rather than being famous. Yeah. I, that had no interest for me at all. I was, I was and still am very, very shy and quite reserved and quiet until I DJ and then I'm a bit different person. But, uh, <laughs> but I just, you know, I, for the most part, I just, I just locked myself away and practiced and, yeah. and kept doing, you know, going everywhere I could to, to get records and learn about records. And yeah. the day the day I passed my driving test, my cousin, my older cousin. Um, had a load of records from a DJ friend of his who didn't want them anymore and he just said you can have just take what you want so I went around there and grabbed grabbed a load of stuff yeah. and that was the first first kind of time buying get well getting lots of um, getting lots of kind of <laughs> getting lots of kind of boogies disco and boogie twirls and albums and stuff like that because it was a stuff that was that was a whole world that I'd never had any kind of access to yeah, yeah. so yeah, and, then, and I should also actually point out that with the with these belt drives that I was practicing on, I didn't. They were no good for twelve inches because they dragged so much. Yeah. So I learned on sevens. Yeah. So the whole this whole fashion of DJing with sevens, it's quite normal for me because that's what I learned on. Because <laughs> the twelves drag too much on belt drives. Yeah. So I would buy all the cheap seven inches I could from Woolworths, which we, which at that time. Was you know Run DMC, Mantronics, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sims. So we buy all that stuff and practice with that. Yeah, well, everything came out on sevens at that point. Yeah, like everything was release, everything so. was out on sevens and it was like you know even the early house bits and stuff were yeah. were, were around. My local Woolworths did me did me good. Yeah. So, <laughs> but we'll come back to the seven. We'll come back to the seven inch thing because I sure, think there's yeah. more to be talked about there. But that's good to know. Um, so at what point did you sort of realise that actually you, you know, you were of a level whereby, you know, obviously you won the DMC, but at what point do you realise, and certainly before then where you don't really know what everyone else is doing, or you don't know what a lot of people are doing, you might know one or two people, but you don't really know what's out there until you put yourself in that arena, like what point did at what point did that sort of come about where you felt like actually this is like I might be of a better standard than most? Uh, I think it was probably around mid 90s. Yeah, I would say I was when people started coming to check to check me out. Like people, were you still in Kent at this point? I was. I've been. I was still in Kent. I hadn't DJed outside of Kent until maybe. 96, 97. So I was still doing local kind of nights in Tunbridge Wells. Yeah. We used to do a Sunday night at the Forum in Tunbridge Wells, which is which is like quite a famous live music venue. But we used to there was a, there was a group there called Funky Buddha, and they used to do put on nights on a Sunday, and it was free. So I, I got to know them, and I started just taking my records down and playing on a Sunday, and then they started doing bigger parties at Christmas and New Year's and stuff, yeah. and that was when I kind of. That was when I kind of really, I felt like I, I needed to step up a bit more because I had actual crowds in front of me rather than just a handful of people sitting around drinking and stuff who knew about tunes. But, but you know, there was 
there was a lot a lot to learn there about playing out yeah uh, and also I learned I learned a lot about you know kind of rare groove and funk from right. going from kind of even my first kind of trips outside of my immediate area to go and watch other DJs so if we when we would go to Gravesend to go and watch Westwood play at Slammer which was 89 90 upstairs before he started downstairs they would play stuff like the JB's they were they were playing like Ring the Alarm and things like that yeah then and and it was just like I've never heard these records before yeah I'm not going to pretend that they were around my area and they, they were stuff that I knew about all the time I'd never it was it would just open me up completely yeah you know I didn't go clubbing in London I didn't know about you know these nights and stuff I just had what was filtering down to me down there and what was turning up locally or what you know I was finding out from my uncles and stuff like that and so it was kind of mad to go out and hear yeah. hear all this music was there anyone that you sort of you did know about obviously you just mentioned Westwood was there anyone yeah. else that was there anyone sort of artistically you were sort of thinking about and thinking oh man then I want to be at that level or yeah, well, actually, actually, the first person that I saw who was from my area, who was really doing stuff at, at a pretty, at an amazing level, was was first rate, because right. he's from he's from uh, he's from Kent as well. Yeah, and the whole TRC crew, graffiti writers, they're all from that area too, and they all lived in a little little village, right. like not far from me. Yeah. So they came to like. My youth, my youth club, basically, when we was younger, yeah. and it was like wow. Um, but I met Paul first rate. He came. He heard about me at these Tunbridge Wells parties, yeah. and I'd already been to see him DJ at a couple of gigs because yeah. we used to have there was a regular hip hop thing at the Angel Centre in Tunbridge, right. which is a sports centre, but they used to hire it out for club nights. Yeah. So it was the most random things that used to happen there, like like. We went to see Derek B there a bunch of times at Overlord X, but they had they had Ice T there, King T, Donald D, wow. Jungle Brothers, yeah. Kid and Play, Karis One, all came to Tunbridge <laughs> in the late eighties. So and Cookie Crew, the first the first rap gig I ever went to was Cookie Crew. Yeah, in in Tunbridge Angel Centre. I've still got a flyer for it somewhere. It's like a Christmas party. And they had two, uh, a guy called Chris K that was the DJ, yeah. the re- the, was the resident DJ there. But first rate and his crew at the time also did a PA at one of these at one of these parties. Yeah. And he was amazing and he really blew me away. I was just like, wow. And then I ended up going to another party at a Scout Hut, which was like a super secret party, and somehow I found out about it from just being up at the pub. Yeah. And um, so we ended up going to that, and he was DJing there. But he was called Blob then, right. not First Rate. So, and then um, yeah, he he turned up after I'd kind of started DJing and getting a bit of a name for myself. And he was like, "I'm going to battle you," and then battled me and kicked my ass. <laughs> <laughs> and then after that, we just became friends. And he was like, "Look, I've got loads of bookings. You've got loads of records. Let's go do some parties together." That's and I was cool. like, "All right, great, yeah, sure." Yeah. So that's what we did, yeah. and that was kind of the beginnings of Scratch Perverts, really. Yeah, yeah, of course. So we were we were doing we were doing a lot of parties together. Some of my first gigs with him were in Brighton, right? 
uh, and I can't remember all the place now. I think it was. I want to say that it's the Telegraph venue that used to be here. No idea. No. Right. Okay. Yeah. I, that for some reason rings rings a bell in my head, but that they were my first gigs with Paul. Okay. So. Excuse my ignorance. Yeah. I mean, obviously, no, that's scratch perverts. When that was a thing before you won the DMC? Yeah. Was it, and was that like a. Did that end up acting like a kind of hothouse environment where you got a crew of talented people all wanting to push each other and what they can do? And that then elevates all of you to a much higher standard. Is that is that how that kind of panned out? I would I would agree with that hundred percent. Yeah, we basically we all met as individual DJs. I knew I knew Tony from work from when from when I used to go to Mr Bongo's all the time to buy records. Yeah. So I was always in there and I was getting chatting to him. And I had no idea that this long haired guy, with desert boots on, was going to be was going to become such an amazing DJ. Yeah. So you know, with him, and then I met Joel later on Prime Cuts, and then Paul obviously I knew already. Just because we used to just see each other around and we'd always stop and say hello and then we started DJing together. So yeah. Um, but I would go and practice with Paul all the time on my days off from work. So I was working full full day to day job at that time. Right. Uh, and I would go and practice with him at the weekends and just 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 keep on and keep on and he would show me stuff and kind of teach me more about how to put on more of performance and make more of it because I was pretty much heads down concentrating right. yeah yeah because that because I was used to just DJing in my room yeah, <laughs> yeah, and being out in front of people he was used to being a showman and being out in front of people all the time so he really taught me how to kind of keep my head up and yeah. watch what was going on really good important good stuff to learn for for later on absolutely um but when when all of us got together and we started kind of getting ready for competitions and stuff, we would we would all watch and watch and talk each other for our routines and stuff, and you know help each other out with everything. It was good good times, and we kind of took our cue really from you know what the executioners were doing and what scratch pickles and the beat junkies yeah. and that were doing. Yeah. We were really into all of all of them, and we would study all of the battle videos and watch everybody and. And I, I did that when I was at school as well. My friends would get the DMC videos and we would quite often go around there on the weekend and sit and watch them and study them and work yeah. out how people were doing stuff and yeah. how how to, you know, I would kind of learn learn, learn the scratches and then and then modify it from and then so you put your own thing on it. Yeah. But then to win the DMC, obviously you've got to then well, in fact, you tell me, you're part of a crew, yeah. but you've got to sort of elevate yourself within that to go and do your own thing. Do you, does everyone feed into it, what you're doing, and give you feedback, or is it like, no, I've got my thing, I know what I'm doing, I know what everyone else is capable of, but I'm going to follow this path. So how did that work? Did you kind of use everyone's energy and put it into it, or did you sort of hide away from the rest of the crew and do your own thing? I think you would, uh, I think I would quite often I think all of us would work on our own stuff and then take it take it to everybody and show them and get get input yeah um, a really important part of it and it was actually nice to have that kind of that kind of thing 
where we would all kind of have ideas and we'd go go to each other's houses and practice and stuff like that. Yes. And but generally we were working on our own. Take stuff, show everybody, have ideas, bring it up when we were putting together routines. I mean, when we were doing the team routines, quite often people that weren't even people that, that you know, like Harry, Love and Renegade and all the other guys that were in the crew would come round and hang out while we were practicing and put ideas in. So yeah. Harry was actually pretty pretty integral into putting some of the battle routines together for the team. Yeah. Because he would have he would have he had a really solid musical mind and would be able to would be really good at structure and, yeah. and ideas for stuff and yeah. yeah, a lot, you know, so that that can't really be discounted. I, I always try and make a point of bringing it up because yeah. it seems to get left out. So, um, yeah, well, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. Um, and then, so when you achieve something like that, did that open a lot of doors for you? Were you able to call DJ and full time your job? Like, you know, was there a living to be had out of it? I know at the time, DJ seems to be more of a revered thing. Yeah, and we'll come back to how it is now. But it seems to be more of a revered thing, and people that were good seem to have opportunities. It's not like now where it's more like maybe a few years ago where people that were good were sort of left behind because it wasn't about being good; it was about personality or whatever. Do you yeah. know what I mean? But yeah, totally. So at yeah. the time, was there? You know, did you make a full-time living off DJing, or you know, yeah. like had what what? Sort of what happened after the DMC thing? Like, what doors opened to you? Uh, well, after after we started competing and things got things started getting really busy, and basically we were DJing all the time, three times a week, sometimes twice a night. Yeah. And there was and and we were able to. I was able to to leave my job right. and, and and do it all the time. It was good. A lot of traveling. A lot of just meeting people. Met a lot of people. I'm really you know stayed really good friends with all these years later. Amazing, amazing time. But yeah, you know, uh, and then after a while, it just kind of, you know, no matter what, just kind of petered out. Yeah, things things change. Obviously, uh, you know, everything, you know. And then obviously the crew broke up too, so it was just a bit weird. And then, so when uh, you was know, it because things were kind of dying down? You know, obviously that cultural period was mm. finishing and a new one was starting. Was that what kind of split the crew up? Because all of a sudden it wasn't the same as it. What used to be a bit, a bit of and that it became more difficult to actually kind of stay as a unit and do the same things because those opportunities weren't there. The the opportunities were definitely still there. In fact, there was probably opportunity for it to ex- expand a bit more. Right. But the other guys, well, you know, mainly mainly Tony and Joel wanted to do different stuff. They didn't want to do hip hop parties really. Right. I think they. If, I think you know if you asked. Then so was it the classic musical differences? It really, it really was because they wanted to do. They were getting drum and bass bookings, right. things like that. And you know, I'd go. Oh, nothing against it at all. I've got you know quite, quite, quite a few jungle drum and bass records. I got, I got lots of every, every kind of record. Yeah, yeah. But it's not really something I, I play a lot. Yeah. And they wanted to do that. They wanted to do more, a lot more kind of bigger parties. Yeah. But they wanted to do more. That kind of thing. Yeah. They weren't really they weren't really up for playing hip hop yeah. so much. Yeah. And then so they, they you know they kinda of called a meeting and broke it broke it all up. Right. Yeah. So and where did that lead, you know, 
did that did, did your own vehicle as Mr. Thing still have the momentum on its own or with the crew not all doing it did that sort of slow things down at all for you it slowed it down for a little bit but I was actually pretty fired up to, to prove that I wasn't just part of this and that I could yeah. that I could be I could be my own I could be myself yeah because I if I thought about it I'd always been you know like I had first rate to start with he kind of took me in and you know pretty much pretty much put me on yeah because my first gigs in London were for him yeah. I wasn't even booked right he would get booked yeah and then I would just be there and then people would be going who's that guy and then and then we started getting put together and yeah, you know yeah, yeah. but once once the crew broke up I was kind of on my own so I had to I was determined to kind of stick to my guns and, and do what I wanted to do yeah uh, so I, I just I just did that and I and I was really pleased that, that I won the DMC myself the next year yeah well after the crew split up I was really like that's what I needed to happen <laughs> yeah. that's exactly what I needed to happen I didn't think I'd won and I was really shocked that I had one but I right. you know I was over the moon why is that did you because you were analyzing other people's performances and thinking that yours wasn't as good or like what how, how does how does that work when you're there mm. and it's all going off how do you sort of manage to focus on your own but also evaluate others against what you're doing and I guess I I don't know I think I just I, I was just I just had a slightly different style I didn't think that my what I was doing was very necessarily exciting I was trying to put my DMC routine together like a DJ set yeah so it had you know a start and it kind of went and it built yeah but I'm not I, I don't consider that I mean this this might sound crazy but I, I really don't consider myself a very a massively technical DJ right at all I'm not I can't do an an awful lot of cuts right but I am interested in keeping groove and keeping yeah, yeah. things in in time and being kind of precise but you know much as I love all the, all the crazy scratching and everything that was never really what I was what I was interested in right it, it didn't excite me as much as somebody you would put in, put good scratching into something and make it sound like part of something yeah and that's what I was that's what I was trying to achieve with my sets but I was, was also aware that it wasn't big kind of big ballsy show-off technical yeah, yeah. sets and so that's kind of where I felt that I hadn't hadn't come up to it but I was wrong <laughs> so <laughs> yeah and then what's the sort of career arc after that because obviously I mean you might see and feel this differently but I certainly from my own perspective Kind of there was a time where DJs were looked up to as the guy with the records and then obviously the digital thing started to happen and then anyone can kind of have any record so you're no longer the guy with the records that's putting the time or the girl with the records sorry yeah things you know the person with the records that's putting the time to go to the shops to get these things to spend the money now all of a sudden anyone can have those tunes yeah and then it seemed that then the art of DJing seemed to sort of go down and then obviously what people were willing to pay people went down became more and more difficult a lot of people I know kind of gave up sold their stuff yeah 
and now it seems to be on the upturn. It's in, people seem, or there's the culture seems to be kind of going back to the people that revere, that have spent the time and do have amazing records and maybe dig that bit deeper than maybe they used to have to, it no used to be longer. It's no longer good enough just going to your local shop, you've got to kind of go abroad or you've got to do that. But the people that are doing that, seems, there seems to be a certain amount of kudos and those people that can then take those records and play them out and have people dancing to them seems to be kind of unstoppable. Yeah. So how has your kind of career through that whole period how's your career sort of gone through that period and, and to where it is now and, and how is it now it's uh, it's it's I think it's gone through every peak and trough since that since the uh, since since the DMCs and since yeah. you know kind of the breakup of the career I basically went from doing tons and tons of gigs all the time and then going from having no work at all and having to do horrible bar gigs which I'm grateful that I was able to keep keep the roof over my head yeah. but I did it was soul destroying and I didn't I didn't I wasn't getting any kind of enjoyment out of it uh, to you know while trying to maintain my interest for going and finding interesting records and you know when I was touring a lot with with Vadim or with the with the other guys we would go to Europe and that all the time always buying records when we were away so I was always looking everywhere that we went for stuff and then I was coming home and nobody felt like nobody cared yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly <laughs> it felt like nobody cared um so I, you know, I, but again, I kind of stuck with it, even through all the kind of not really having any work, and then I got kind of, kind of dropped by my booking agent at the time, and I was just like, "What do I do here?" Yeah. I went back to work. Yeah. <laughs> went back to work uh, and did, and was still kind of doing the odd gig here and there, and then, and it kind of, it stayed like that for a while, and I really, to be honest, I thought about jacking it in, and yeah. I took, I took, you know, recently I took quite a long break from it. Right. I took about six months out. Right, right. And I was just like, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with any of this. Uh, and also, I took, I took, I started scaling back what I was doing because I was wasn't really enjoying a lot of the stuff that people were trying to sell me as gigs that I would be good at. Yeah. Um, I, I was I was basically suffering quite a lot with hearing loss, so right. I've got really bad tinnitus all yeah. the time, yeah. and I've got no high frequency hearing right. at all. Right. So for my kind of day to day, I have to wear hearing aids. Oh, really? That's, yeah. Well, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's kind. Of, I don't really talk about it a lot. Uh, you know, I've not done like a whole big public thing about it, but it's kind of important people know that you've got to look after them but I kind of decided that I didn't want to do all of these kind of parties that wouldn't where people didn't care where people were literally holding up their phone trying to get me to play X, Y or Z yeah. and shouting in my ear because they didn't like Motown but wanted me to play Stevie Wonder 
yeah. something they could dance to, you know. So, uh, you know, I kind of had had enough by that point, but I was, you know, still rolling on with it. <laughs> just, just kept, and I just stayed, stayed with it, really. And when is it? When, when did it? Like, how long ago did it sort of start to pick up again? It feels like the last sort of two or three years, things are really. Yeah, it was, it was kind of crazy. That I think the thing that kind of re. Reminded people was the was the first boiler room I did with um, with Amir and Jasmine Gerald and Chris Reed and Kev Beadle uh, because I got booked for that and I was like uh, it was my friend Paddy from Liverpool and f another guy Phil Cooper put me forward for that and I'd never done anything like that I'd heard about boiler room and I was just like wow yeah okay that could be a cool that could be a good thing to do. But I was also aware that it was going to be people stood in a room watching me DJ. <laughs> and um, so I I've went got, and did, I've got mixed thoughts about that boiler room. Yeah, I went and did it, I went and did it, and it was it was like that. It was like people just standing around drinking, you know, beer and watching you and, yeah. and kind of chatting politely in the background. But it was people enjoying it, and that was one of the first times that I didn't feel like I had to play. A hip hop set. I didn't. Yeah. I felt like I didn't have to play what I always played. Yeah. So I went there with a bag of forty fives and some some jazz and some Latin and yeah. stuff that I like that I enjoy. And I'm just like I. I feel that if I'm playing with Amir and Jazzman Gerald and Kev Beadle, yeah. I'm not. Why would I turn up and play a hip hop set? Yeah. I'm going to have to bring soul funk, jazz, Latin, Brazil stuff. So I did. Yeah. And people were like, Oh wow. And you're mixing it. Yeah. What? Uh, and I was just like, yeah. So, and after that, I got I got a ton of bookings off the back of that. And I actually got booked to play more, more vinyl sets. Yeah. So it was great. So I was able to actually put the records to, to some use. Yeah. Rather than them just looking nice around at my house. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, and also as well, the other thing I think that kind of picked it up was the, the series of releases that I did for what the, the BBE ones, the Strange Breaks compilations that I did for BBE, and the Kings of Hip Hop one that I did for them as well, and also the stuff that I did for First Word as well, because people had no idea that I had records like I have. Yeah, records like when they when people saw the guys come to my house and they filmed film there, everyone was like, I had no idea. You have records like that, and I was just like, yeah, I keep it. I've quietly just been hoarding them away for years. <laughs> I've actually trimmed it down an awful lot since I moved. I moved since I moved house about two years ago. I've really, really scaled it back. Right. Like really, really been quite brutal with it. I just don't have the don't have the space for it, and also a lot of it I don't even play anymore. There's a lot of it I'm just like, I wouldn't touch this again. Yeah, so it's on. Okay. Just as an aside, yeah. Because I try and do a little bonus bit that I'll either play on my show or I'll release it like just after the main one or just before the teaser or whatever. Yeah. Tell me about going into John Peel's collection. Going to John Peel's house. What a thing that was! I was lucky enough to do. Uh, I did a de I did a set on John Peel's show. Yeah, when the DM, when I was in the DMC just before I won it 
and I met him there. He was absolutely. Oh, lovely. he was there. He was there. Yeah. Wow. He was there. We all DJ. We basically had four sets, two or three sets of turntables set up in a room with him. Yeah. And basically, all of the finalists did a routine on his show live on air. Sick. So I got to meet him then, and it was amazing. He was he was absolutely lovely, and then with the perverts we got asked to play at his birthday party at Maidervale so we, oh, played right. at his, we played at his birthday party at Maidervale yeah. and met him again and saw him again uh, and then obviously he died and it was awful and I was gutted you know uh, had a real connection to it all because yeah. I grew up listening to him and yeah. listening to picking up bits and pieces he would play a lot of hip hop on his show and I was listening to it and uh, yeah, yeah it was very sad I remember my mum calling me and telling me, I was just like, oh, you know, that's awful. Yeah. So anyway, fast forward quite a number of years, never imagined that we would go to his house. So I went up, I went up there with, I went up there with my friend Leon and Leon knows the family and he's the one that basically got the idea to them that they would, we would be able to that we should go there and go through the records and yeah. make beats from things that he had in his collection. Yeah. So I got there a day before everybody else, <laughs> <laughs> and I got the tour of the of the collection, and I was yeah. I was losing my mind. Basically, everything is is firstly there's so much history there; it's insane. It's everything is left exactly as it was. Right. There's nothing's been. It's not been kind of like tidied up. There's, it's all exactly as it was. Yeah. So there's like, there's a whole, there's a, there's a whole wall of records that haven't been, that hadn't been processed because everything wow. there was in chronological order of when he got it. Right. And all of it, every single record had a number on it and every single record had a library card handwritten attached to that record with a star rating for each song on the record. No way. So anything that had like a three or four star rating, he would, would be guaranteed that he would play it. Yeah. Either in a DJ set or on his radio show. Yeah. It's insane. Oh my God. And I saw so many things there that, I, I mean, there was like, my goodness, I've seen some things that you could buy a house with probably. Right. It was amazing. There's so much history there, like the handwritten lyrics for Teenage Kicks yeah, yeah. in a frame over there. and. It's just amazing. Yeah. But going through it all was daunting. There was so much of it. Well, how do you, how do you, I mean, surely you haven't even got time to go through a fraction of it and then pick something out that you're then going to, or pick sample. some things out that you're going to sample and make something for. Yeah. We were going through, I was basically, once I worked out it was in chronological order of, you know, and I was kind of thinking, right, well, where's 68 to. <laughs> <laughs> mid 70s and kind of found that room and then was going through that uh, you know and there was just amazing stuff in there stuff I'd never seen like by artists that I knew but I'd yeah. never seen some of these records ever yeah nice the impulse albums he had were amazing just like amazing set of impulse jazz albums and stuff yeah incredible and 45 is a whole different thing I had to, to be dragged away um, <laughs> he had amazing, he had everything, like everything. Yeah. It was mind blowing. 
absolutely mind blowing. Okay. And I went back again. I've been a bridge twice here. What was the occasion? What was the second for the second one that you did? Or? No, the second time I went back, I went and did um, something similar for them. Okay. For the for the peel archive. Yeah. So I've been. I was lucky enough to go up there twice and go have another look for it. Wow. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. It's the problem now that you can't close. You know what you've seen. And you know what's out there. And yeah, I, I mean, it was it was good. It was great for that. It was amazing to see see stuff that you've never seen and think, right, okay, I need to track a copy of that down. Yeah. Some of them super cheap, easy, reasonably easy to get, just obscure. And yeah. other stuff, high hundreds, forget it. Others, thousands. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> All right, brilliant. I think that's that. That's a nice little section there. Okay. Okay. So going back to your career, then. Yeah. So how is how is it now? Like, how, you appear to be getting. You know, you, you seem to be popping up lots of places. Mm -hmm. it seems to be quite a positive environment for what you're doing. Would you agree? Uh, at the moment, I I'm enjoying what I'm doing. I'm I'm not. I've I've been quite careful about what I'm, what work I'm taking on with regards to my hearing and also in terms of playing to people that actually want to hear something other than what every other club night is playing. Yeah. Um, it's been, uh, you know, and it's not like I just DJ full time now, I do still have a job. Okay. So I work, I work, at, I work for BBE during yeah. the week I've also actually uh, just set up an office space uh, over in Hastings, where I live, with my friend, and we're going to be selling records out of there. Okay. So, and that's my other other job. <laughs> so I do record fairs and things as well, and I kind of have been learning about that alongside. Yeah. Alongside record collecting and that as well, I've been learning about how to to. to where to go to find them and I've been yeah. doing bits and pieces of that for BBE as well we've been on a couple of big buying trips to America and things like that so just tell so, me a little bit about BBE what you can I appreciate it's not your sort of company yeah sure but I, I imagine that they listen to things that you've got input on I imagine they ask for your input on things they do they do and I do some the, the, the work I do for them, to be honest, is very varied. I actually work in the warehouse for them. Yeah. So I do the the, the really the unglamorous end of it too, which is packing up records and getting yeah. the deliveries and everything else, which might seem like a mad job to do, but it's uh, it's actually it's actually something I really enjoy. I get to organise a whole other record collection. And how? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I also do, you know, I've also got my own releases for them as well and, yeah. you know, got others that are in the pipeline and I do also get to, they do also ask, get, I also get some input into releases as well. If they, you know, like some of the Alim 7s, that's a BBE sub-label, I, I kind of, the first lot of those were my kind of, they were my suggestions and my sure. thing. So. Um, but yeah, that's the kind of thing I do for them. Anything and everything, basically. I just and how long have you been with them? Uh, probably a few years now. Because I was running the shop up in. They got a shop up in London Fields. 
Yeah, I know. Yeah, I've 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 been to a night there. Yeah, so I was running that for a little while. Right. Okay. And then when I moved when I moved down here down to the coast, I was I basically just started working for the label. Yeah. Down here. So and, um, so what have you seen in the time that you're there in terms of like is are they now pressing out more vinyl like. Are they pressing out more? Are they selling more physical product and a lot? What's what's going on? There's definitely there's definitely uh, the, you know the, the the love for kind of physical releases is definitely more on the vinyl end of things. Yeah. But you know they they do they do there's a lot of stuff coming, a lot yeah. of new titles coming quite often. Yeah. So there's a, they've got a whole bunch of stuff that's getting ready for release right up to probably. September, October, beyond. Yeah. So yeah. So, so it feels like a sort of positive environment to be in because there's there's a there's a love for it and a demand for it. Yeah, definitely. I I love it. You know, it's yeah. it's it's great for me. I get to kind of see all sides of it, really. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's uh, it's 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 a really a really good experience, and it's also something I never imagined I would be would end up doing. Yeah. Okay. And um, in terms of sort of the state of music as well sort of going to the title of the podcast about the current state of music like as a general sort of over opinion or you can be in depth about particular things or whatever how do you see things at the moment for yourself and for you know what's generally going on with music um yes i think this is a real demand for it at the moment i think there's a huge demand for people that want music whether people want to pay for it is another thing. How people choose to play it out is another thing altogether. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think, there's a, I think at the moment, there's a really strong thing for people wanting to hear proper DJs. But then there's also, at the other end of that, there's a really bad thing of people playing playing out like they're DJing on shuffle yeah with no kind of regard for tempo time of night pacing yeah any of that yeah that's just something I see a lot I'm always just like like a, like just a, a physical jukebox yeah literally like, like a it's just an interface to a jukebox somebody standing there that you can go and shout at yeah yeah and, and I've had that a lot yeah well yeah, yeah, yeah I think well mo I think mo uh, 99% of DJs have got horror stories about mm. <laughs> about, <laughs> about the angry requestee. Yeah. So uh, yeah, <laughs> being told your shit to yeah. your face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you've been playing nothing but jazz for an hour, and they want some house music because you won't play it because you've got a bag of records. Yeah. You are told that you are shit. Yeah. I've had How that. Insulting. I've had that before. I had that the other weekend. It's awful. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the, the, it's it's a very difficult thing is because people feel that they can tell you that that's what they want to hear and that, that what they think will work and you know yeah. I'm a DJ can you let me have a go etc 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 and then there's all the classics as well can you play something funky while you're playing James Brown etc I've had all of all of those things yeah and uh, you know, and I've also and I also have uh, had a quite a spate of people standing in front of me shouting 
you know, like gesturing me to pick it up a bit. Like that. <laughs> I'm just like, what do you want me to do? Bang out some four to the floor? Like, I, it's not what I do. Yeah. <laughs> um, but do you think, because I've, from my own experience of, well, the last time I played at Patterns, for instance, here, there was none of that. Right. And, you know, like somebody, you know, you'd still get the request, can I, oh, can I have a look in your record bag? And it's a bit like, mm. but this girl, she looked in, she pulled out Edwin Taylor and the Pelicans, and she's like, can you play that? And I was blown away. And then I wow. thought, if I can play that, now I can play all sorts of stuff. And people really picked up, seemed to pick up on that. Yeah. And I didn't get any grief at all. And people seem to switch on. And do you think that maybe it's more switched on young people because they've got access to so much different music easily yeah they are now more open to it and it's the kind of 35 plus crowd who give you shit because they want they want their club classics yeah they yeah <laughs> they want what was big 15 years ago yeah and yeah. they want to have that experience again but yeah. the kids now are just switched on to so much more music they're more likely to be open to it totally agree is yeah. that something that you've found at all totally agree a lot of lot of young people really young people come you know, you know asking me about records and stuff if I'm doing record fairs and things they're like oh you played this thing is there any chance you got a copy of that yeah. and I'm just like wow it's amazing yeah. I did not know about those kind of records at your age so good I really love it I love it <laughs> You know, when I do record fairs and it's people, younger people asking me questions about stuff of, of mixes I've done or things, sets that they've heard and they're like, you played this thing and I don't know what it is, it sounds a bit like this and I'm like, oh right, yeah, that's such and such record. Yeah. And, and you know, they're saying to me, uh, but I, I also like this thing here and it sounds like that and it's similar to that and I'm just like, this is brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's super, super easy to go on a mega negative one about bad bad requests I, I yeah. understand that but I, I do the the uh, when people are really positive and you've had a, a good impact on somebody and they love what you're doing love that yeah can't can't buy that or anything it's not anything you can yeah, yeah I love it and do you find that kind of the nights be you're being booked now are generally more switched on like people know what you're going to do so they book you for that for a crowd that want that rather than just like a, oh I just need someone in my bar on a Saturday night or oh, booking because it's the right budget or whatever do you find that your gigs are getting progressively better and more to the right crowd it's uh, I, I'm not sure about that it's di it's difficult to say you know I, a lot sometimes I get I get I asked to play places and I'm told it's this kind of thing you should play this and then I get there and it's actually the polar opposite of that um, but when I do get ones where I have been kind of where, where things have been kind of I would say a bit more thought out and they really understand, have really really thought about and they, they care about the music and things like that yeah then you get that definitely yeah and then I'm in, I'm interested in playing for people who really who who are as excited about it as me. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Know? I, I like that. Excite. I like I like people that are that are really excited and and passionate and yeah. into it into music. Yeah, you know, not 
not booked somebody because they've got X amount of followers or they think that they can reach this amount of people if they book you and stuff like that. It doesn't yeah. work. And then, so going back to the seven inch thing. Yeah. Because I've had this conversation with DJ Format. Yep. And I'd like to get your kind of opinion on it. Okay. Is it because it's kind of taking buying records one step more difficult to like say, right, I'm only doing sevens, or like mostly doing sevens or whatever. Is it a sound thing or is it like a making life more difficult so that your sort of USP is is there, you know? Like, this is difficult, carrying a bag of records around is difficult. Yeah. Only having sevens is then another step on. <laughs> is it that, or is it just a sound thing, or is it just because you it's easier to carry around and do a gig with a bag of sevens than it is with a bag of twelves? Or I, talk I to me about your the, the seven inch thing. Okay, well the, uh, the seven inch thing for me started purely because the belt drives were so bad yeah. that I learned on sevens. Yeah. Once I did get techniques, I did go twelves all the way except for funk 45s and things like that which yeah. i kept buying soul funk reggae 45s that i always bought um it's really easy to carry 245s around <laughs> it's really difficult to get on a plane with 200 albums or 12 inches <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and if you've got to travel there it's it's a much nicer uh, way to take a lot more music with you yeah. and also I think I I always found it enormous fun to DJ with sevens right. it's a lot of fun yeah I mean you, once you if you go out and just try and impress people with what, what's on seven that doesn't work it's fun when people realise that the stuff is on seven uh, I've had people come and ask me for Drake and stuff when I'm doing seven inch sets and I'm like well Unless you're going to present me with a seven-inch Drake, or you know, insert other shit rapper that you want to hear, they don't exist. So you're right. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, you know, I think it's good, and also as well, it's kind of it's got people back into the frame of DJing of records. Yeah, in quite a big way, it's yeah. made it more attractive for people. Yeah, because because taking around and storing so many albums and that is quite quite difficult yeah. especially with all the restrictions on traveling on a plane and stuff it's pretty prohibitively expensive almost to do it so but bag of 45s carry it as hand luggage did you never fancy the sort of serato route I've, i fully have gone serato route as well i have that i have that too because yeah. i've done i've done a lot of touring and I've been, say, to Australia, and you can either take a bag of records or a bag of clothes for a month. So, <laughs> it was once, you know, once my cousin taught me how to use it and I kind of got it for myself, albeit very unwillingly, I was really dead against doing it. Yeah. I learned it and figured that there was actually a lot of benefits to it as well, and I enjoy it. Yeah. It's good to use, and also, Around the time that Serato was really getting popular, there was so much stuff that wasn't coming out on vinyl. Yeah. A lot of the reissues weren't around then either. Um, and 
it was just a very it's very very handy for traveling yeah it's unbelievably handy for traveling it's a great invention for that in terms of people seeing you DJ with a computer and feeling that they can ask you for everything and fe feeling that you might be able to play it off YouTube for them etc is a whole other argument as yeah. of course but it's still got to be down to your taste and how you put it together is what yeah. and how you use it but yeah, it's, it's, it's a whole other thing yeah but I, I really like it and I really adapted to that I've done, I've done nights you know a couple of nights on the trot where I've done a 45 set and then I've done a Serato set yeah. even in the same night yeah, yeah and then the next day gone off and done something else completely different yeah, yeah. <laughs> and i love it. it it you know it's all it's all djing to yeah. me okay nice um have you got any advice for anybody that wants to get into djing or collecting records like is the jump off points or what what's a good pathway in? uh i would say in terms of learning to dj I would teach yourself how to mix first. I, I learned to mix first before I learned to do any kind of scratching at all. In fact, I couldn't scratch for a very long time. Yeah. Uh, and so I learned, I learned how to mix, got basically learned the absolute basics, how to wire, how to hook up equipment. Yeah. That's something that people don't get taught. So then when they get put in a club and they're like, <laughs> It doesn't work. Nothing works. You can't <laughs> just stand there blankly with a room full of people. You've got to be able to figure troubleshoot it a little bit. Yeah. Um, but definitely learn all of that stuff. I know it sounds really boring and really like not productive and not glamorous at all, but it's it's hugely important yeah. to, to learn how to mix where where stuff should be, how to build a set, how to start off and how to where to end up yeah. and things like that and all of that stuff is really important do you think that technology has kind of possibly taken some of those skills away definitely yeah because a lot of, you know like when when things will mix for you with you know like sync buttons and yeah. stuff it just that doesn't interest me at all no. <laughs> I'm like I want to be able to put it I, I want to choose how to put it together I don't want someone to yeah. to put it in yeah. and it, it, you know it, even if you're doing it on a computer it doesn't matter if you're doing it off a controller it doesn't matter just or CDs just just learn to count to four and put it in the right place or at least have an idea of where where it's going to sound good yeah super basics really super basics and then and then with you know and then just show people or get advice from people and listen to what people say like you if they give you feedback because i had quite a lot of people early on just say that's not right or what you're playing isn't right but they were right because yeah. it wasn't for a room it was what i was playing at home yeah and even though to a degree it's about your taste and everything you've also got to consider other people too <laughs> so <laughs> um and with regards to collecting that's a different different thing i i basically started off going through aunts, uncles, parents, cousins, anyone's records who I could go, anyone, anyone's house I went to, I'd be like, you got any records? Yeah. I'd just go and look. I just really had a fever for learning about music. Uh, and that should really be your, your starting point. Just the love of music. Just the love of music is the main, is the main, main thing. And, and then as, as you get more involved in it, I started looking for 
what musicians were playing, what songs they were doing, cover versions of. I'm a nut for cover versions. Yeah. Cover versions, I buy it all the time. I hoover them up, good or bad, yeah. and then get rid of them if they're really awful. But anything that's good, anything that's interesting and different will set you apart in a DJ set. Yeah. And but you know, trying to play top trumps early on with uh, with big collectors is 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 a no. Buy some buy some average white band before you go somewhere. Right. <laughs> so there we are DJ Mr Thing and his thoughts on the current state of music uh, the next episode is going to be with Rich File who was in Uncle with James Lavelle and it's a very uh, candid and honest interview and one that I'm really proud of so you can look forward to that next time. I want to thank Mr. Thing for giving me his time on a Monday afternoon. And also to apologise. The sound quality in that interview wasn't great. I left like the breakout cable of my sound card at home and I pulled it out of the bag and I was like, oh my God, I've just balls this up. And I searched around and found a little in-ear kind of call centre operator headphone and microphone set which Mr Thing was very kind to wear and I felt like such a fool but he was very generous and the sound wasn't too bad it wasn't the quality I was hoping for and it sounds a bit more echoey than I would have liked but apologies the rest of the interviews in the series have all been done with Aston microphones in slightly more controlled circumstances so please don't see that as a benchmark of how the rest of this series is going to put out i wanted to do mr thing first because he's an interesting character with an interesting story as are all my guests but i felt that he's certainly someone i've seen dj and scratch over the years and I was really excited about doing this one. So I thought I would put this first. So yeah, Housekeeping Corner, if you would be so kind to like and subscribe. If you can leave me, if you've enjoyed it, leave a review on iTunes. And tell your friends about it and do all that kind stuff. That is very much appreciated. The more listeners I get, the more guests I can get, basically. Um, all my guests so far and certainly in season one were kind enough to get involved just through well I don't know why really because there there was no track record and there were no listener numbers or anything and yet Mr. Scruff, Mark Ray, Fred Deakin, Jean-Claude, DJ Format, Damien Harris all came on board and gave their time willingly as has everyone in season two. So coming up, we've got, as I said, Rich Fire. We've got Mr. B, the Gentleman Rhymer, Laura Vane, Lee Bright from BBE, Arrow, Professor Elemental, Jay Felix, Ian Archer. And then hopefully we've got a couple of real quite big names to finish the season off, which is still in the pipeline. So I hope you stick around and find out who they are. But for now, thanks for listening. I do appreciate your ears. I do a weekly show on 1BTN at 10am on a Tuesday morning. If you kind of like the vibes, then tune into that. And if not, 
hopefully I'll see you again on the current state of music very soon. Take care now. Peace. <laughs>